Hello friends, how's it going? My name is Matt Barr, you're listening to Looking Sideways Action Sports Podcast, the show where I try and cover the most fascinating stories in action sports and other related endeavours. Thanks for checking out this episode of the show, hope you enjoy it. I'm recording this on the longest day of the year, also appears to be the rainiest day of the year, as you might be able to hear, but you know, nice bit of atmosphere in the shed. Today, for this episode intro now i think the most common question i get asked about looking sideways is what's your favorite episode get that one very very frequently fair enough why not i do do them all after all to be honest i don't really think about them like that you know if i do look back on the chats i tend to rank them by how much i enjoyed them at the time because it's like doing anything this can be pretty stressful And I'm usually focusing so hard on making sure the conversation is as interesting and revealing as possible while also trying to keep the guest engaged and also thinking about generally, you know, where to take the chat. Means I uh, only can really enjoy them afterwards quite frequently. But then every now and again, I record an episode where within five minutes, you know, you're in the hands of an absolute master and you can just relax and enjoy the conversation for its own sake. And this episode with my friend Henry Jackson is, I'm happy to say, one of those occasions. Now, of course, it helped that Henry's an old mate of mine. It also helped that we both came up through the snowboarding industry, meaning I was very much on home turf for this one. But really, the credit is down to Henry himself, who is one of the most interesting, unique and compelling communicators in snowboarding and action sports today. What does he do? I mean, that's a good question. He's an MC, he's a commentator, a broadcaster, a shit talker, as he himself would say. But really, he's created a totally unique role for himself in the finest, yes, life a tradition. Couple of entries for looking sideways. Bingo, if you're keeping score there. So yeah, a classic looking sideways chat, this one which I reckon you're going to enjoy as much as I did. I'll be back at the end for more of the usual frivolity. But in the meantime, here's me and Henry Jackson. My job is weirder than yours. Enjoy. Uh, So you've been for a surf. Good effort. Yeah. um, Already come back. How Um, was it? really good um we kind of uh yeah we've we've discovered a well not discovered it's a, a little beach break that we know a bit north of where we are and uh the banks are really good so we've been hitting that up the last few days yeah but weaver was telling me that you're like 5 a.m every day like no rain or shine yeah I, I try and i try and do the dawny like uh the there's a few ways around here that are pretty famous and luckily the sort of if the tide's a little bit funky for the for the local crew who know when it's best and and it's a bit early they tend not to show up so we do a do a dawny and uh one of our crew is also he works construction he does he did all the renovations in my house and he so he's got to work all day john tends to be doing his stuff during the day so um i'm pretty free during the day but those boys normally have the dawny free so i try and get it yeah done. We're allowed to say Koshos, aren't we? I mean, that's 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 certainly famous I'm, enough. 
I can I can neither confirm nor deny the rumours to where we live. <laughs> <laughs> I was discussing this on the way back because uh, I mean I won't ask you to name the other spot, but I mean that I mean that that yeah. that's that's a bit like you know. Well, we serve fistul for Portugal. I mean, it's pretty famous. Yeah, yeah. We were discussing it on the van in the way back. I was like, I don't know where, whether I should say. I think I'll just say I live somewhere between the south coast of France and the north coast of Morocco. <laughs> Have I just blown it? Just blown no, it don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. It looks like you're charging. I mean, that picture you put up the other day of um, that, um, you know, I'm sure you know the one I mean. That was, the, that was the fucking birthday. sick turn. Yeah. It was a birth, birthday post. Yeah, that was the, the 40th birthday surf. That was pretty fun. Yeah, that I mean, was, uh... Weaver, Weaver sent me that and I was, I was because me and John are always basically like, our ambition is to do one one good turn ever, I think, on a surfboard. <laughs> I actually surfed the wave through the week and for the first time I did I actually engaged my rail. <laughs> I yeah. Like, I was like, wow, that's what you meant to do. Like Jesus. You know, I actually got my rail in and like did a carve. I was a bit like, Christ, you know. Like so and that that's still about the sum of my ambitions really. So whenever I see a picture like that, one of my friends I'm always like, Fucking hell, go on. Like but you know, it sounds like you've been putting the hours in putting the work in as you always uh, did as you always did with snowboarding as well probably more of a fluke though those turns i'd say but it's interesting you say the wave like i i had a quick session in uh Cran montana uh at the audi nines and i tell you what if you want to if you want to just purely work on your technique of riding a surfboard and not like any of the other crap that you have to learn like the ocean and stuff if you purely want to learn how to do that that place is magic i've not done the bristol one but the Cran Montana one, I was like, I tell you what, if you do three or four sessions of this in a month, your surfing will go way better. Yeah. Obviously, that obviously when you get to the ocean, you got to put that into play. But like for learning, like how to do a turn in the pocket and stuff, I was like, wow, this place is insane. Yeah, no, it's funny you say that because I because it was obviously flatter for most of April and May, so I actually ended up going about four times to the wave. A couple of work things, a couple of things with mates, and I, and it's it's so funny that you say that because. Yeah, like the, you feel like the progression is really rapid because it is just so repetitive. So, you know, that's like probably eight sessions. So it's like actually, you know, getting on for like 60, 60 waves really. And in, the, and in the ocean, especially when you live where I live, to actually get 60 proper waves, it's that, I mean, that's, you're not going to get that in a year. Like that's, I was going to say, yeah, is that that's, almost a two year count? That, that's for sure. So, but it was funny because then, I felt like I was definitely, I mean, I, I definitely was improving. There's no doubt about it. And then, and then I went and surfed in South Wales and obviously then you throw in the dynamic of the sea and I, and I was like, Oh fuck, you know, like it is, <laughs> it, it, it is obviously quite different. I mean, yeah, it sounds like such a dicky thing to say, kooky thing to say, but I, it, it was more difficult than I imagined it would be to transfer those uh, learnings to the sea. Cause obviously then it's just such a, you know, sensory overload of stimulus, isn't it? Stimuli, whatever the word is. Um, yeah. That you've got. To, you, and I, I guess when you surf in places where you're surfing at the minute, where they're actually got got consequences, like super shit hot locals, probably quite busy at points. Yeah, all those things add up to. Um, yeah, well, that's what makes it so fun, isn't it? Because you know, when you actually then do that turn that you got the picture of. It's, yeah, uh, it's it's good because I remember Chris. Uh, Chris Chat um, came out to visit. I actually missed him, but he came out a couple of years ago. And he, because he's up in Manchester with Adidas, and Snowdonia is really close to him. 
yeah. and he was doing he was going he was like that's my weekend he goes down spends you know rents one of those little cottages and spends a whole weekend surfing gets guaranteed his 12 ways per session skates a mini ramp couple of pints job done and he came out and rupa he stayed at rupo's house and he was saying um you know chat was all like oh yeah i've been getting really good in 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 snowdonia and he basically you know not trying to you know do him any wrong and see or anything but he, he just got his ass handed to him yeah, by the Portuguese, it, Portuguese ways and yeah yeah it, it's, it's different i mean whenever i go to Portugal or France, like it, for example, it, it yeah, it takes me a few days before you get yeah. up. To, it's your speed of thought, isn't it? It's like the, it's like kind of transferring your speed of thought to you to you the physical outcomes is just just takes a while, doesn't it? What like, oh for sure, it's I I always think it takes me about a month of of surfing to get properly like start to get back into it, and by the end yeah. by the time by the time it's time to go off to the mountains again, I'm like oh, you know, I'm not thinking about am I going to drop in with my head between my knees and my feet in front of the tail pad or that kind of thing. But yeah. actually, interestingly enough, we had a discussion about this in the lineup the other day. We were saying like the amount of times Rupo, John, myself, all the other boys we surf with, the amount of times we drop in and our feet are in completely the wrong place on a surfboard, but we still manage to do turns. We're like, I wonder if any of the pros, if they were told, right, you've got to put your foot in the wrong, wrong place and see if you can still do that turn maybe we have a little bit more talent than them (laughs) maybe it's such a it's such a shock like to feel the end of my tail pad like the kick tail like i I think maybe 20 times in my life and 20 years of surfing i've actually stood up with my foot or initiated a turn with the foot like jammed against that tail pad and the board's actually done like reached its maximum potential of what the board could do. It's like, wow, that's easy. And then the next 10 ways can't even find it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like when you do, when you do that thing that you're supposed to do on a surfboard, yeah. it is, it's, it's definitely more gratifying, especially if you've come at it. I mean, I think you've obviously served way more than I have, but when you come at it late, as a, I'm, I'm assuming, did you start, were you the classic sort of snowboarder entry into surfing, like sort yeah. of twenties or did you grow up, did you grow up surfing? So, well, I grew up more or less, I mean, after the age, I moved to the Northeast when I was seven or eight. Um, so Northeast, Northumberland, North of Newcastle. So on the ocean and I bodyboarded a bit, but it wasn't like bodyboarding in the sense that, you know, Mikey Smith and the, and the chargers are out hunting slabs. I was like, I, we would go to the beach, take a toboggan, sledge down the sand dunes. And then if there was a wave, go, you know, flop about on the bodyboard. So I was aware of the ocean and the waves. So I think I had a bit of a head start with that, but then I started uh 20 or 21 um it was actually rob white who used to run the iceland camp I- ipp yeah, yeah. back in the day yeah, i remember rob, he, yeah. yeah he got me into it because he was he'd been doing it for a few years more and he was always like i just wasn't that interested i was like come on snowboarding's way better he's like no you gotta give it a go and i gave it a few goes and then wasn't i was like doesn't seem that cool and then of course the classic like caught my first like green face wave like got the drive or whatever, like probably completely cooked it, but had that like moment and was like, oh, this is, this is the summer activity now. Yeah. I mean, that was what was one of the really fun things about IPP. I only went once, but that, that being able to do those little surf missions as well was, was super fun. Oh man. Like I, I still, I think one of my top five most memorable surf sessions was at IPP. Like I was a complete kook back then. I could basically stand up and maybe go down the line if everything went right. But because it was 24 hour daylight, that was, uh, 
I remember Rob coming to get me at like three in the morning once. He's like, oh, the waves are really good and we're not going up early tomorrow. Let's go for a surf. And yeah, 24 hour daylight. So we paddled out. I remember we, it was really clean. It was probably only about waist high. So good for us or good for me at the time. And we looked over and you could see the glacier in the background and you could just about see, or probably imagine it, we could just about see the camp, like the, the park up there. There was a waterfall coming down with a rainbow and it was three in the morning. There was just two of us on this massive beach. And Rob was just looking at me like, can you like, what the hell well, like, what's going on right now like it's three in the morning <laughs> are you seeing like, this yeah it's like please like we've got to remember this for the rest of our lives so i was always like yeah this is pretty amazing i mean that was definitely one of the more special snowboarding experiences i ever had like everything yeah. about that place was was unique and every day seemed to have a moment like that really you know yeah. like I, I was there for two weeks i think maybe 2003 i think we went was it was do... it the second year was it the second i think it's the year second year yeah, yeah. yeah. Went, went over with jamesy chris um you dan, and you dan was there, there. ewan was there jono was there i think milner was there wasn't he i think mark was marcus there i seem to i seem to remember marcus being there. no were you there the year nelly Nelson was nelly, there? nelly was there nelly was there definitely john was there that yeah. was that was the set. Yeah, if Weaver was there, it was definitely the second year. Like Lisa Phelps Moser was there. Yeah, yeah. We built the really crazy death kicker, like quite high up the mountain. Yeah, that was really steep takeoff. <laughs> yeah. That was, that was my absolute nemesis all week. <laughs> yeah, that thing was uh, not 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 ideal. But yeah. You probably wouldn't was... build it now, but uh it oh, was no. yeah, but even but that but that's perfect case in point, isn't it? Because what you know, we were there to shoot the mag and just the backdrop was just ridiculous wasn't it like and and everything about it like the hike up from where you parked through the glacier the fact there was no lifts the 24-hour daylight the, the day you know the day missions out around like just hiking yeah. it was just it's just amazing wasn't it it was so did so, and did we have sleds that year or was it all hiking? no we didn't have sleds yeah because no. we there's no there's no fact, mini yeah, either you yeah you came the year yeah there was a there was a we got dropped. The sponsors pulled out at the last minute that year. Um, and through no fault of anyone working there, they just had suddenly the budget disappeared. And we were left like, I can't remember, I think Graham, Rob and Bjartney were left like, like such a short time before the camp started. And they were like, we, ha well, we still have to do it. So we're on kind of rations. And yeah, because later on, Nikita got involved. Yeah. And they were able to give a bit more budget. So we had the mini ramp and we had sleds to at least do like, ferrying from the car park to the park but yeah when you were there it was full on like drive up that pumice stone road yeah walk walk like 30 40 minutes to the park and then hike everything wasn't it yeah and like everyone basically bunking down in that community hall yeah, yeah. well that was just great though i mean that you know that that just made the whole thing such a brilliant experience so when you think back i mean was it whose idea was it because it was gray and robin biatney that ran it right so it was born from Graham, Rob and Bjartney together, they worked on SPC camp in Austria, which is where I met them. Yeah. Um, and they were all shaping together and I think sharing a room and they, they, you know, they've been chatting about it and Bjartney, his, uh, well, they don't in Iceland, they don't categorize like cousins and second cousins. It's just his male relative, I think is right. how they say it. So Trigvi, the guy who owned the lift and the cat was yeah. Bjartney's male relative. I'm not sure if it was direct cousin or cousin of a cousin or second cousin or whatever. So he, Bjartney knew that there was this connection in his family to that area, to Snaefelsjokul. And I think he sort of suggested it to Graham and Rob. 
and they were like, yeah, let's let's do something. There was, and then there was there was Ia Adelheidr, the 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 girl who who shredded really yeah. hard. They asked her if she wanted to be involved, and she was like, no, I'll come, but I'm not. I don't really want to get involved business wise with my friends. So Graham Robin Beatty took it on, and then they, I think they they talked. It was kind of one of these things. Like I, I remember them talking about it, and really being like, oh, I really want to do that. But they were quite like, I was quite like, they, they sort of need to invite you to go. And they were really like, there's only going to be a few people allowed to go and stuff. So I was like, okay, cool. I'm not going to be that guy going, oh, can I come? Can I come? I like, if, if they asked me. And then they'd already invited a bunch of my friends. And I was like, oh, I guess, you know, I don't know if I'm going to get to go. And then they're like, oh, do you want to be like part of the 10 man shape crew or 10 person shape crew? And yeah, so we did the first year, which was insane. That was kind of like what's happening here. And then the first year was the tester to see what happened. And I don't think we really, advertised for campers it was more a photo shoot thing and so yeah. some pros came out and it was more like if this works we'll turn it into a, a camp and then the second we year saw when it, you came yeah we saw it that first year and we were like we've yeah. got we've got to do something about that i mean yeah, you know yeah. that's obviously just crazy um and it looks now <clears throat> so visionary really when you look back i know like we Bjartney and i still talk about doing something like more more photo shoot orientated like kind of trying to pick a window and, and advertising out to companies but i mean if you think about it we did five years um trans world came out and they did a i think they did an 18 page article yeah did they go which, out with like devon walsh and people like no that? it was I... it was chad chad otterstrom right uh uc tarvanen from the truly clan um uh stephen duke and i think steve fisher came with them right was that pipe pipe rider <laughs> who rode for head yeah. Um, they came out and then through other things, we had a bunch of the pro, the girl pros. We had uh, uh, the ladies was because then Nikita sponsored it and they had the Nikita Chiquita Jam going on. They had the series in the States and in Europe and the winners of that got to come out as well. So through that, one of the years we had Erin Comstock come out. Um, Marie Franceroy came out before like she was sponsored or anything. She'd won the amateur one and she came out kind of before she blew up, like the season before she, she took off. Um, who else? Like all the UK, all you guys came out. There was, there was Nelly was always there. And, um, who else? There were so many. And of course well, it was the start of the Iceland kids. Well, I was well. going like, to say, I mean, I, I mean, and you'll be able to, this is one of those things I'd, I don't know if I've imagined or not, but I've got a pretty clear memory of Haldor about age eight or something or 10 he, or 11. Yeah, or something, he was, he turning was up. Uh, 11, and, um, I think the first year. Like, have I? Is that right? Did he? Because yeah. I because we used to play football, didn't we? And I remember playing football with all the Icelandic kids. Yeah, and I've got a really was... clear memory of like everyone going, "He's a ripper," like, yeah. and he's like yeah, eleven, yeah. and he had like shoulder length blonde hair, didn't he? Exactly. So that so was, was actually him. Yeah, Aki Haldor, Gulli Goodmanson, and then Victor, who was their their other friend, who was actually, to be honest, like in some ways, Victor for me was was the best out of the four, style wise. But he. He did a bit and then he went off to university. But so there's those four. And then they had uh, Gady, Auskia, Holgerson, who you probably know as well. He used to work for Nikita and yeah. um, legend. He was kind of like, he had this thing called Team Divine and they were Team Divine and he kind of pushed them to probably get where they were today. So he was their minder and they had a tent outside the outside the cabin because we couldn't, we didn't have space for them in the in the house. And they camped in that. And yeah, Haldor was 11, Aki must have been 13. And they were just, yeah, energy. Yeah, they were funny. Sort of they were funny because they're all super into football and they're all pretending to be the Icelandic player who played for Chelsea. 
yeah yeah that's right yeah when we were playing with them because you know at the time we were all like late 20s weren't we so yeah no really funny i mean we were over there with leslie as well and the chunky knit yeah crew of course yeah that's right yeah jenny was there and yeah all and and they made that film obviously which was again again when you look back very ahead of its time um and yeah iceland was a huge part of that wasn't it yeah because because i remember we met I clearly remember meeting you for the first time at the European Open that year that Mickle was snow skating when he was about 11 or 12. When there's, In the I think it, Yeah, I think it was like a quarter pipe jam maybe that I seem to remember Beckner winning or there was, or, or, or maybe yeah, that was yeah, a, yeah. like, and you were shaping or you were part of the crew. Yeah. And I remember there was a car like some, on the running or something or on the flat bottom and we ended up you were like come over here and we watched it from the car bizarrely enough and that, that, i think that was the first time i remember meeting you ah, and okay, then yeah. and then we sort of connected the dots because i was doing stuff with john at the time he was doing stuff for me at white lines and yeah. then obviously it turned out we had like loads of mates in common but you were basically at that point shaping a lot weren't you you were and and kind of living this sort of classic dirtbag season air life right yeah yeah that was my that was kind of my entry to to everything was was through that so i i did my first winter in chamonix um and we might have bumped into each other there randomly because i knew chris and i knew you guys and jono and yeah. i knew you guys all had a place the Boisson, we had our place exactly yeah, yeah and i was up yeah. in argentien and then i went to Meyerhofen for SPC camp. And through SPC camp, I met um, the now defunct SPC camp, sadly, but I met a load of crew, uh, most importantly, kind of Klaus Marco, Captain Chaos, who ran SPC camp. And he, the next season, he was building the Penken Park in Meyerhofen. And he was like, do you want to stay for the winter and, and, and shape or help shape? And I was like, I don't really want a full-time job, but he's like, look, I'll need you for the take up and for the take down of the camp, uh, of the park. And I might have some other events going on if you're around. So I was like, okay, sounds good. And a friend had an apartment that I could rent. So I was like, I'll go to my office. And through that, through Klaus, I ended up working at Aaron Style, um, shaping. And then through that connection, another friend, Stefan Plattner, who was also at Iceland, who then ran the Penken Park after Klaus. Yeah, uh, he, was, he, he was the other guy at Lavinia, right? Yeah, exactly. He yeah, was, there, he was so... a great. He he he's in touch with him. He was a great lad. Yeah, 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 we we were meant to be working together this summer, but it didn't work out. He's actually now building parts in China. He's right. he's over there. So through him, he knew Wendy Wu, who is an English lady who used to work for Burton or do events for Burton. Yeah, she was looking for basically two runarounds to do the banners and things. Uh, with ah, Eva. Right. Okay. Yeah. So. Got it. So we were we were we were taken over, and it was basically like sold to us as you won't get paid, but you get to come and hang at the European Open, ride a bunch, and there'll be some free beers. And we're like, oh, sounds yeah. good. In retrospect, well, it was kind of slave labour, but it was fun. Yeah, <laughs> that was the free taxi year, wasn't it? As well. Yeah, I, yeah exactly. I remember that you could flag a cab, and Burton had paid for all the cab for the cabs yeah, yeah. for the whole of it. I mean, Jesus Christ, talk about the uh, the glory years. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, so that was my entry to kind of like events. So I ended up for the next few years, sort of doing these kind of like, I don't know, like freelancey type event work, uh, which is cool because it meant I didn't have to work full time in the winter. So I would, I would, yeah, it'd be like two weeks building air and style, boom, paycheck done, free for a month, whatever, then 
just clouds would call up and say, oh, the Brits are coming. When Scott Todd did the Brit games, like we need to make the yeah. part perfect. I've got 10 days of work for you. Do you want to shape during the Brits? Like, so I'd have these little events going on and just kept that going for a few years. And that's how I, and then with the summer was IPP and then Folgafonor I worked at as well. So it's kind of just these little hubs of work that would keep me on the, on the snow, which is also why I didn't surf, I think, because I was, I was pretty much year round snowboarding. Yeah. Um, and, and this is obviously when you kind of make, because, you know, one of the things I always think about you is like how incredibly well connected you are in, in <laughs> snowboarding. And you do know like literally everybody. But that, that's how it happens, isn't it? You know, you you do you do those years because you, you know, you just absolutely fucking stoked on snowboarding. You're going to do it as much as possible. And by almost by default, you kind of just amass this network, don't you, of people. That, exactly. Which, which seems to be how it kind of happened for you, right? Because 100%, yeah. That's um, that's what happened exactly because yeah those events working sort of let's say behind the scenes and then moving on later to being on the microphone that that um, those connections were all still there yeah um, and it was actually quite it was quite cool because it, it it also um, it helped me quite a lot work out which connections were good ones or or, or let's say quote unquote real ones because a lot of the time you'd meet people and and I get it now I I you know I'm probably guilty of it myself like sometimes when you just constantly working at events you meet people and sometimes you're tired and maybe you don't give them quite the time of day that you wanted but sometimes back in the day I remember being the shaper guy or whatever or the banner guy and people just like ah, who's this guy and then as soon as I was on the mic they were all like oh hey how are you and I was yeah like, yeah oh, I remember I remember you yeah yeah <laughs> well I mean there's a lot of, I, mean, so I think about that as well and I think I think a lot of times it was just kind of social awkwardness as well wasn't it when you think back because we were all so young and also when you think it was everyone was just so fucking drunk and hung over the whole time as well <laughs> yeah and like you kind of didn't really think about very boring grown-up stuff like social anxiety and and all that but i reckon there's when i think back to those times now those grumpy mornings when everyone's kind of not really talking to each other i i imagine that had quite a lot to do to do with it really you know yeah um but that might, you know, you mentioned getting on the mic and that transition because, you know, obviously one of your, I think I'm actually going to call the episode, my job is weirder than yours. You know, that's like <laughs> your slogan, isn't it really? Yeah, um, yeah. So how, before we get, you know, back into the the start of that part of your, you know, singular career that you've carved out for yourself, mm -hmm. how do you actually describe what you do now? Talk shit. <laughs> <laughs> kind of what I say. I always say yeah. I piss about for a living when I don't ask yeah. me. Yeah um yeah it's funny I, but that's that's the initial answer i give i'm like i talk shit and then people are like what do you mean and um, yeah. and then so i, mean, I guess because it's branched out a bit but essentially i i mc i moderate events um and then from that i also do a bit of production uh with some stuff i also work with absolute park doing some team management with fishy um uh, yeah, kind of jack of all trades in that sort of realm, but mostly the event stuff is based in emceeing the events. Like, but you do, trips. you do, you do more than that though. Like, you you've presented TV shows, you've made loads oh, of yeah, like, yeah, really yeah. popular. Oh yeah, I've done that. <laughs> yeah. You know, you've got you know Jackson's Holes like really popular. You've done loads of podcasts. You know, you, I think you I think you're underplaying it, which is quite funny because even even saying like I talk shit, you know, you're deliberately underplaying it like straight away because what you do is totally 
has value and you've worked your ass off for it. So yeah, it's true. Um, I, I, so why, why, why do you, cause I, I I'm just curious cause I do the same thing. Like I completely downplay it. Um, and I think in my case it's because it's easier than trying to explain. Cause what it is, is just actually, it's actually so weird, isn't it? You know, like what, what it, I think if we just take what we do as an example, we've both ended up with like, what are essentially really fucking weird careers yeah. um, by, by following the things that we're into. And it's funny cause I sent, a, I just did this book and I sent a copy to my mother-in-law and you know, she really loved it. And she was a bit like, I sort of get what you do now. And, and then, and I said, yeah, that's what, that's my job. And she was like, well, I don't think you can call it a job <laughs> yeah. because it, because it is hard. It is hard to explain to people, isn't it? Is that, is that kind of why you reach for that default talk shit answer? I think so as well. And, and, I think that's that's probably eighty to ninety percent of it. And also, I've I, I've I've encountered in let's say in in what I do, I've encountered some some interesting egos, right? Um, which which uh, have made me kind of go like, oh, please don't be that guy. Okay, <laughs> like as it, but as know. in like as in just the, the territory or the industry. Oh, more more specifically with the with, in the MC game, like sometimes you come across people who really think they are the shit because of that. And I mean, I've, right. I'm I'm guilty of being an an asshole at the best of times when alcohol's involved at, at after parties and things. And I I know that, but like there's sometimes where I'm just like, wow, that guy really really thinks really thinks that it's all about them. And I'm like, right, make sure we don't do that. And I I actually specifically remember doing. You, you mentioned Jackson's Hole, which was the show I did for Red Bull back in the day. I worked with David Doom, a Belgian filmer. And I remember like, cause yeah, people would ask us like what we're doing. And he's very obvious. He can just be like filmer. Yeah. And you know, he did heaps of massive production stuff. So, I mean, he would downplay it as well. And I always quite respected that he was sort of like, yeah, I'm just a snowball filmer. And then on the, on the same count, I remember him saying to me one time, like, he's like, I quite like it that you say you like, you're not like, Oh, I'm, I'm here for Red Bull. Like, doing this rad show it's kind of like oh we just mess about and it yeah. always sort of stuck to me like trying to keep it humble do you think that's a british uh, thing because you don't find i think Ameri- it's quite british you don't find americans british. doing that no disrespect no, to my american no. friends that are listening but i think no. it's a very a very british thing that isn't it you know like the you and always used to say to me like excessive self-deprecation is actually as annoying as arrogance <laughs> yeah at points which i think yeah. is quite an, quite an insightful comment and um but it's quite british isn't it you know to sort of downplay yeah. it and be like oh yeah i just sort of you know i just piss about really i don't really do yeah anything. i know it's it is weird isn't it because I, th- I found at times as well i found like uh i think the opposite would do me well like often i'll get contacted by an event or you know a potential job and i'm there i'm like right i'm gonna write the email like boom i'm the shit you know this is what i've done like your event will be nothing without me. And I find myself just like kind of looking over my own shoulder, writing email, man. Yeah, can't do that. Just, just list what you've done. You know, please contact me back if you're interested kind of deal. It must be quite hard then. It sounds like without, you know, don't, don't want to get the Freudian couch out too early, but um, because part of what you do obviously requires you projecting an ego and, and being, you know, you you do have to be professionally the loudest man in the room. You do have to kind of be the hype man. You know, you do have to do all that. And that, it sounds like that can be a, 
almost like a cap you need to wear. Let's put it that way. Yeah, I mean, I'm more, I'm probably more comfortable. Give me a microphone in front of, you know, whatever number you say. It's not good. Like, put me in front of 10 people or 10 million. I don't care. Like, that, the, the, once there's people in front of you, I, it doesn't matter how many there. I don't get nervous or anything like that in any way. Like, the only, the only nerves ever is like maybe if it's a TV broadcast and I'm like, right, don't mess this up. But in front of people with a microphone, I could stand there for hours just pissing about it. And it doesn't phase me at all. But yeah, maybe writing an email to, a, to an event that would put me in that position and then trying to sell myself and get a decent, a higher day rate, let's say. Then I'm there like, oh, can I really ask for this? Do, do I deserve that kind of thing? Right. Strange. Yeah, um, it is strange. It is strange. And well, when I've got friends, we've got a mutual friend, Tom Kingsnorth yeah. from Transform Gloves. He like put him in a pub situation, like with with people around, and he is the wittiest, funniest, like sharpest, like genius, like pub banter. Like I can sit next to him and like cry laughing for hours. But then there's been a few times he's getting better now. But a few times I've been like, look, come on the webcast for a minute. Let me let me interview you or come on something. And he just like he's he's it switches like he's shitting himself goes white yeah. like and we finally got him to do the webcast for the rocker ill um and i think he had to do like 10 shits before it went on like, <laughs> just kept kept running to the toilet and and now now he's, he's done it a couple of times and he's really good but like it's so funny like that weird the way it flips because it's almost go, on. go ahead uh, so i would say almost in the bar sometimes i'm a bit more nervous i'm like oh if i say something that's not funny yeah i'm a dickhead but well, I, I was gonna say do you get have you always had that lack of nerve or have you learned that? Uh, I, I can't, I think I've always had it. Um, I think, so I, when I grew up, my dad was in the army um, and we moved like, before I was seven, I lived in 12 different places, went to like however many preschools and first schools and stuff. So it was constantly like having to adapt to a new friend group or whatever. So I think, if I think about it, yeah, it's probably that. Like there's an, an adaptability and have to be like, right, well, this is what's going on. These are new people. Either I can sit in the corner and, I don't know, suck my thumb or I can chat to people. So I think there's always right. been a bit of social confidence in that respect. Yeah, that makes but, sense. Um, I mean, and as well, you got to remember the, the early part of my career was was done fairly inebriated. <laughs> uh, yeah. And, and then you just don't really care, do you? <laughs> Yeah, because I, I mean, I guess the reason I ask is because I do still get quite nervous. Like sometimes, even not not when it's you, obviously, because we're mates, and it's. I was really looking forward to this one because it was. I was like, ah, oh, you know, I don't need to. I don't need to worry about this one. Yeah, but like yeah. I, I do. I do still get nervous. Um, but it's always like the apprehension. It's always, and then when you do it, it's actually fine. You know, there's there's that there's that kind of like thirty seconds where you kind of. You know, it's a bit like giving a speech or something or doing a presentation. Like the yeah. the anticipation of it is is always always worse than the execution. But I am I am beginning to think like it'd be quite handy if I could get over that apprehension part. Really, like I did I done quite a few Instagram lives last year, and I I did I did, uh, did I do recently that I was really nervous at I can't even remember, but I did something recently. I think it was like a live thing, and I was genuinely shitting myself, and. Um, <laughs> And to the point that I didn't really enjoy the experience until afterwards. Yeah. And I, and, and I was a bit like, fuck, I, I need to get over this really. Cause I, you know, I've been doing this a while now. <laughs> like I think, well, I think I can probably, I think I can probably like 
give myself a bit of a break with this really yeah i think what what with what you do as well it can be different like because i've been doing the series with the canadian snowball team recently yeah watch it fear, yeah yeah fear of a flat planet um and i say i i think i think i get a little bit more nervous with with that kind of thing being on your side like being the interviewer there because for those things i want to i really want to it's a bit more personal. It's not just like like a big event. There's run. There's things happening. You kind of like on the mic. It's not recorded. It's just blah blah blah. It's gone into the world, and then people have a good time and they leave. Whereas this, people can go back. So I'm a bit more like I want this to be right. Yeah. Um, and so maybe there's a little bit more nerve elements there. Maybe that's and why you said the TV thing as well. Like you know, because yeah. the idea of doing TV kind of really terrifies me. Like yeah, uh, I think I think then that's when other thoughts of like. I think as soon as you, I start thinking maybe like this could be good for the career or don't mess this up because X, Y, and Z. And that's when I tend to get nervous because, you know, you see an opportunity and then you're like, oh, you know, your, your brain goes off and you're like, oh, if this goes well, maybe, maybe I'll, you know, that'll be a full-time job on TV or I'll get paid amazing money or blah, blah, blah. And that, that creeps in. Yeah. But then the times when you just, you're like, well, whatever, just relax and do your job then you feel a lot better. And do you find that you actually, the, the results are better as well when you approach it like that? Yeah, the result, like there's the, the sort of more se- quote unquote serious stuff I do, obviously when there's some prop, you know, proper preparation prevents piss poor performance and all that. Yeah. Like as long as I've done what I, what I, you know, need to do beforehand, which isn't that much. I tend to just do a bit of research and sort of get a rough idea if it's an interview and then half the time you don't end up talking about any of the points anyway but i like to feel like i'm going into those kind of things prepared and the same if i'm doing so like back in the day 99 percent of my work was snowball based and i'm kind of i've got that like i you know less so less more now because of the the, the younger riders and stuff but i was always like i'm good this is my territory i know what i'm doing that's your muscle memory that's exactly i I can call the tricks i know the tricks i'm not going to mess that up maybe once in a while i know the riders i know i know how to do this but then it branched out and for example i did the red bull x fighters motocross finals in abu dhabi one year (laughs) <laughs> and I was, and that was like, like I, I used to follow motocross. So I used to know the tricks and stuff, but I was like, right, you do not want to be the guy more for the, more for the, the riders. Like I, I, the crowd is obviously important, but I also feel like it's a disservice to the, the people who are throwing double backflips on a motocross bike. If you yeah. don't have, you know, you don't put in the time to respect them enough to actually learn what's going on. So I remember I did, I actually did like homework for that. And I remember getting there like with my notebook and I was like, right, no, I've got to test myself. I need to know all the tricks. And uh, I went and watched training with uh, Busty Walter, who's, uh, do you remember Steffi from Vans? Used to be the Vans marketing manager. She was no. a pro skater. But anyway, this guy, Busty, anyways, German guy. He he was one of the first German freestyle motocross guys to do a backflip, like legend in the German motocross scene in the, the worldwide one. And he was doing the German commentary. And I was like, Busty, do you mind if I stand next to you and like, trick call the training just see if i've got it on point and i did it and he was like you actually got them better than me so i think you're doing all right so i was like okay right. good i can go into this like like then i was nervous i was like, i don't want to mess this up yeah yeah um, well you have that that's where you know podcast phrase cliche alert i swear the old imposter syndrome c- comes in there isn't it because you yeah you know, like there's 
and I think that's definitely what's going on with me sometimes when I get nervous with with some of these interviews. You kind of it's a fine line, isn't it? You what you want to do it right, but also you want to earn the respect so they take you seriously, so that they'll open up and give you a good, like give you something decent, basically. So yeah, there's there's a lot there's a lot going on. I guess I'm interested with, in it with you because you, you do project such confidence and you do project such um, like you're unfazed by the things we're talking about so it's just quite interesting to hear you kind of mention that which is why i've kind of honed in on it a little bit yeah you know? no there's 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 elements there of it i mean i i again i find myself when i'm relaxed and and that kind of like well i think i in in the beginning of the career it was kind of i'm chatting to diggles about it a bunch like you know the the, the bell graph yeah phenomenons like i'd say the beginning it's kind of invert like beginning of the career really didn't care was because i was probably getting hired for events where they're paying you a case of beer in a free hotel room. Yeah. Bring a friend if you want for a VIP wristband to the after party or whatever. So then I was like, well, this isn't a job. This is just something fun. So I didn't really care too much about it. I did. I cared obviously, but it was like, oh, well, you know, it's not like it's a career. And then as it started to become a career, the nerves came in a bit and I was like, oh, don't want to mess this up. And now I, you know, I can, I accept that I'm fairly established in what I do. I kind of come down the other side of now I'm like, They've obviously, they want me here. There's a yeah. reason I'm here. I'm not like, you know, I, I can, I, not that I can rest on my laurels, but I, you know, I'm, I've, I've put in the time. I know what I'm doing. Don't worry about it. It's going to be okay. But also like the element of don't, don't be that guy who gives up completely and is like, I don't need to do anything. Like I still want to be on, I don't want to get tricks wrong. I get furious with myself when that happens. I want to still be up to date. I want to try and know what's going on. But there's a reason I'm there. They obviously like it, so I can sort of relax into it. And yeah, you've earned and the right. Have a good time. Exactly. You've earned, yeah. you've earned the right to be there. I mean, that would be my next question, really. So when you started to get those first gigs, um, MC and events, which I guess is probably what, like 20 years ago, early early 2000s. No, God, no, 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 not 20. It, coming up on around 10 years now, I think. Oh, really? I thought it was. Yeah, or maybe. Yeah, I I need to sit down because I I recently now I live in Portugal. I recently closed my limited company down in the UK. Right. And I and I think we did it was ten years that we had it. So I guess add like two or three years of kind of getting paid here and there. So probably like twelve, thirteen years, I think. Right. I could work so, it out exactly, but it's it, you know, it's a decent, decent whack. <laughs> so the and, and that was where where it began, like this like shifted away. It was like calling events and MCing and stuff. So when that started to happen, did you did you early on did you think like, all oh, right, there's there's a there's a bit of an opportunity here? Because obviously there's a few um people to to model on you know ed being the obvious one Obviously, you know, that was, yeah that, that was like ed's kind of path wasn't it yeah tim, so tim, tim as well probably yeah. although tim obviously came from the production directing video side like way more than ed but um did you did you think like all oh, right cool like there's a bit you know weaver did a load of stuff as well didn't he you know back in the day like yeah so we kind of started together john and i we had a we we did a company together so as you said, like there was Ed Lee, Christian Stevenson, yeah, Christian, even even Jay uh, Stevenson, Graham's, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, he yeah. was doing it. Tim, um, Les Gendel, Gendel was at that time was again with the lockdown productions, kind of more with the the comedy skits and stuff, less event stuff. But you know, we go to the Brits in Lax, and it was always Tim on the mic or Ed or or whoever. And so, and I think like when I started, it was just more that was a fun thing to do because I was pretty, at that point I had 
started more or less full-time shaping in the, in the park in Meyerhofen. Um, and Stefan Plattner was the boss and he was good enough to say, look, if you've got an event going on, just tell me and I'll go off and do that. Um, and in the very beginning, it was more like that was quite fun, but it went quite, I think it was one of the first events, but it was definitely not the first. What the first one I did in Meyerhofen randomly did. And then the Aesthetica guys like Beckner and Volle and Steve were all there watching this contest and they were like, oh, that was pretty funny. Like we've got the Wangle Tangle coming up, which is now sadly defunct, probably looking back on it, the best novel contest that's ever been done. Great event. Um, yeah, we did a looking sideways thing that year and it was brilliant. Yeah. Amazing. Um, and uh, when they mentioned that I, they were thinking about me for the, to do the Wangle Tangle, which for me was like, you know, one of the biggest comps ever. I was like, Oh really? Like that was kind of a little light bulb moment. And on the, at the same time, John Weaver, he was, he was working with forum at the time and they had a young blood series contest, which he was traveling around to. And he, I, I can't remember exactly how it went down, but I think there was a couple of contests he showed up to and the, the MC either didn't show up or was, was awful. And he was kind of like, give me that mic. Like, like the kids deserve better than this. Give me that. And he'd done the the school series with uh, Stu Brass and stuff. Going yeah, the school. yeah. He'd done, he'd done his, he'd been in the trenches. Exactly, yeah. in the UK. Um, yeah. And so he had that going on. And we both kind of were like, obviously the UK scene's tied up, but we weren't really that much part of the UK scene, to be honest. We were kind of more in yeah, Austria. Yeah, well, that's, that's anyway. another thing we should talk about after after this little bit, like that, mm. that whole like Meyerhofen hunger pain sort Bubble. of offshoot <laughs> but yeah but carry on yeah, yeah. I'm with you. but yeah so john and i we, we at the same time we both sort of looked at each other and went well there's something going on here like there's clearly not a lack of other mcs but maybe we could do something because people like it and so we formed banterbox which was our company together and we basically tried to sell ourselves as the dynamic duo um kind of ed and christian style um and we just we just kind of covered each other's asses like so if if um you know if there was an event that i heard about i'd say hey can i bring my friend like we we work together and they were in the beginning it was always like look well we're not going to pay you double if you're happy to split the money or you know split the case of beer or whatever it was we're getting paid then that's all good and most of the time we do that and then otherwise if john couldn't do an event he would he would always say look there's this guy henry and if i couldn't do an event there'd be this guy john um, and we kind of started through my contacts from all those events I used to work at. I, I was able to like message people and sort of they heard, oh, you're emceeing now. Maybe you could do ours. And through John's contacts with Forum and Burton, he had a sort of backdoor in with Aaron Style and some other things. So we kind of, you know, worked together or like tried to help each other out as much as possible, um, which worked really well, um, used each other's connections and went really well. And then, I mean, we were basically then when John... John first got the Nike job. Um, he he had it in his in the first year. I think he said, "Look, I don't want to give up the MCing. I want to still do it." And then when that job, I think when his sort of grace period or when the first sort of year or two was done, they were like, "Look, we really need you to focus on on team management because he was still he was doing the European Open when when uh, when he was still the Nike team manager." And I think they were like, "Right, okay, it's, it's good that you're doing that, and we like that, but it's time for you to move on." So when when he had to do that i then picked up as much of the slack as i could yeah i mean the other thing um, is worth saying you're both bilingual or maybe more than bilingual but you both i mean was that important because it did seem like that gave you 
like yeah you know like I, on that before you answer like on that point that you made earlier one of the really admirable things about you guys and notable things about you guys is is you were as you said you were separate from the main uk scene which i guess like we were all part of with white lines and stuff and you guys like really did create your own thing like you know you you weren't you know back then there was a lot of we used to get so much shit for being cliquey you know it was it was always like it was always like ah, oh, you know you've just got your favorites and you don't you don't like unless it's like in this resort and this resort you don't cover like whatever blah 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 which we we used to get really upset about and thought was like super unfair at the time i mean it's funny thinking back but what i always really admired about you guys you know because the fact of the matter was it's just like a resource thing there's like three of us trying to do everything and or four of us so like we, we we basically did our best you know what i mean but you guys like completely created your own scene essentially you know you had a brilliant scene going on in meyerhofen clearly and you didn't you didn't really sit around and wait you were just a bit like well we just do ourselves you know like we'll make our own films we'll like we'll 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 work at these events and and also quite crucially you were really really well connected to the main european scene because i think that in inverted commas main british scene in the in the noughties in the early 2000s or whatever was still a bit of a satellite wasn't it it was still like oh there's the quirky brits who've got their thing that they do and you know like obviously we don't really need to talk about this, but the riding had kind of yet to catch up on the, apart from like a couple of really standouts like Danny or whatever. And, but you guys always had that connection to the main European scene. You always like felt like you were much, you were part of that really. I always just really admired that because, and and I think what to bring it back to the, you know, you and John setting this thing up, that's a really good example of that because you did, you know, you could both speak German. You did have all those connections. You weren't relying on, you'd also served your apprenticeship in the British scene like John had done with, you know, with White Lines in the AIM series. So it kind of all made a lot of sense that you, you did start to branch out and do different things in that context, really. Yeah, I mean, we did feel quite quite separated from the British scene, I'd say. Certainly me, because I, I mean, my quote-unquote snowboard career for what it was started very late and you know was you know was to do with the british scene but that was sort of i dipped my toe in it with the odd magazine trip but i wasn't i was i had a life in my often going on before a couple of sponsors came on so i was perfectly happy out there shaping and doing my thing um and then i mean it is a stretch to say we did that like i pretty much 90 percent of everything was john like he he's such a even now here like He's such a motivated character, like he can't just sort of sit and chill or he's always yeah, got he to be doing sit something. Still, so, yeah. Um and yeah, because so he's got I, a scheme, so he's got a plan. He's got something going on, or like yeah. starting a new company here or something else. And it was, you know, most of it was him. And then we just happened to be lucky to to be around him. Cause I was in Meyerhoff and he came out with Tom West for a season. We linked up. Like I met him before, but never really hung out. And then that kind of and we weren't the first in my often like there'd always been a strong crew of Brits, but I think that bubble had sort of burst a while. Like when Chris Carr and Tim Hoden, everyone, they'd gone and Gary had been there before, but they'd all left and gone back, to, gone to France or, or stopped doing seasons. And then, yeah, John, but it was pretty much all him. Like he, he, yeah, it's funny. You mentioned like how that you guys got shit and it's funny to think back how much we cared about stuff then that just didn't matter. Yeah. Cause we, we get a mag and we were like, Oh, there's another trip with John O'Verity. Oh, here's another lockdown movie. And we were really like, we want to go on these trips. Like, why can't we do something? And it did. It bred this kind of like, 
almost to the point almost like fuck those guys like even I know, though I'm, you're you guys no i know like, i remember i remember we got we used to get like honestly we used to get we used to get hate mail like we used to no <laughs> we, used, way. we used to get you know i, I remember got a board x one year and some kid coming up to me and like properly having a go at me like no way and going like you know like i we're here trying to do our thing and you know, like really dressing me down. And we used to take it really seriously. Like Chris used to mm. roll his sleeves up and get on the forums, like which yeah. goes to show like how <laughs> long ago it was. And he would, yeah. he, you know, he'd really go into bat for it and, and kind of argue about it. But I think, I think it's just passion, isn't it? You know, like every, every, well, that was every, it. everyone's just trying to, you know, also at the end of the day, you know, we were all just very, very opinionated and passionate about snowboarding weren't we whether we were doing yeah. it or whether we were trying to document it even back then and i think that's just at the root of it isn't it and when like like we say when you throw in like being in your early 20s and like taking it like very very seriously yeah yeah yeah. and a load of booze you just get those little conflicts don't you no that was it and yeah like so john john was like right we'll we'll get hunger pain going and that was and and there was like there was a few other guys who were like oh we can get behind this because there was the lockdown crew and you know it was so funny now when i watch the lockdown movies on youtube i am crying and i'm like that is what a snowball movie should be like and then we were there like being like these dudes doing like pissing about doing skits like we got james thorne doing cab nine to back nine on the pro line we don't want to see like whatever it was they're doing we're going to do something we're going to do a real snowball movie and like looking back and it was so stupid we're like yeah we're going to get these shots but luckily that passion you know fueled the fire and we you know the first hunger pain we we put out was really cool and it kind of cemented us as a unit which is which is always good in snowboarding to have your crew um but it also i think it gave a bunch of us a bit of drive to be like oh like thanks john we can do this and like kind of in his slipstream then went on to to sort of take that motivation to to keep things going because i mean after that you know james thorne had a great career with burton europe um things great like that very, you know other other riders went off to do bigger and better things and um yeah it was a good time like the hung pain times and then again with john just there like oh there's not you know there's not two british mcs in europe right henry let's make a website look i've done this i've got john wood to make us a logo we're now banter what are we going to call it banter box right here we go this is us now and i was like all right well, let's get it done kind of thing so gotta say a huge thank you to john it's all it's all him <laughs> none of the rest of us <laughs> well like we say he's still he's still doing it isn't he you know he's Man. still he's still basically fired by that we you know those 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 are the people that make the scenes aren't they you know essentially yeah, they're, sure. they're the people that kind of catalyze things and and change things even even on that you know as we're saying like when you look back like it kind of seems all quite trivial now but like that's what kind of made the scene that we now have those things and that's that is really important for sure but yeah with you know it seemed to move quite quickly for you because because obviously we 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 bump into each other in a lot of weird places around the world you know <laughs> like i think the last time you know, we bumped, I'd see it at the US Open. We bumped into each other in China one time, didn't we? Oh yeah, was um, that the world the world champs, the 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 last ever TTR world champs, or was it the Aaron style? It was the it was the world champs, yeah. In in Yabuli. Yeah, exactly. That really, I mean, it's up near bloody Mongolia, wasn't it? That place. Um, yeah. You know, New Zealand. I'd see you, like you know, because we were all part of that that kind of. Well, you way more than me, but I would dip into that sort of tour. And yeah. that's one of the things that I noticed after a while, you know, I'd probably do like two or three of those things a year because I'd get sent somewhere to write about it. 
but wherever I went, you were there, you know? So like, <laughs> so it seemed that you quite quickly got co-opted onto that main world circus, really, it, you know, competitive. I, I mean, as in like, cause it's a tour, isn't it? In the same way that tennis is a tour or whatever, like, you know, the same, if you're going to do those events, if you're going to go to those places, it's essentially the same group of three, 400 people yeah. that do it, isn't it? You know? Yeah. And you, you quite quickly, it seemed to me, suddenly were part of that. So did that change from the kind of smaller scale European thing to sort of getting onto that main tour? Did that happen quite quickly? Because from the outside, it seemed to. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it did relatively, yeah, for sure. Um, I think within the first three years, I went from just doing it as a kind of, well, first two years, maybe as a kind of something on the side to actually being able to make a living from it. And you, like the the timing was really good for me as well because obviously back then the TTR tour the now defunct TTR tour was still the the tour there was fist events going on with the world cups and the olympics would come around every once in a while but the TTR still was the main tour and through yeah various connections a huge shout out to like the Burton crew especially cuz man there were so many tours back then it was there was the TTR tour there was the Burton Global Open series um, the fist world cup thing yeah. and then like all of that somehow going on so i was fortunate enough with john to get a foot in the door with burton at the burton european open in lax um how we pulled that off i've not i think it was through burger actually burger gruber who who now does freelance was in burton for years she got us into the webcast and we did it together and through that, we met Maria McNulty, who used to be Burton's boss of events. And then it went on to Ian and then now Cam. Um, and through that, we kind of got our foot in the door with them. And then they were like, oh, well, you guys are great. Like, let's go kind of thing. They're like, we want to bring you everywhere. So and there wasn't everywhere to go to. So it was kind of and it luckily it sort of perpetuated that once you're at one event, the next event's like, well, oh, well, you're the guy now. or You're the two guys or maybe you want to come and do our event. And And as you said, it then ended up being a kind of circus whirlwind of back-to-back events which uh i i i think i mean i was kind of on i guess on the downward curve of what those events were like i think ed lee for example he was right in the thick of it when ttr was you know yeah when there was when there was money proper money around yeah exactly like i still caught the tail end of it which was amazing um it's still funny to talk to some riders now about like what they do compared to what it was 10 years ago. But yeah, so we got on that tour and yeah, it's, it's kind of one of those things that if you, you know, again, not necessarily all the time, what, you know, it's who, you know, cause once you start to meet those people and, and then they're like, Oh, come along. And, and once you're in and you do a good job, it's, 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 it's fairly easy to stay there, which is quite nice. Yeah. So how, when you look back at that now, that's quite a hectic decade you had there. Like how, Dude, was... how, how, how does, you know, I, I, you know, not to labor the point, but I would see you abs- absolutely everywhere. You know, it was always like two in the morning, yeah. like, you know, <laughs> and you certainly, you certainly burnt the candle at both ends. You weren't. Oh, for sure. For sure. I, I, I remember an, an, an ex-girlfriend of mine having, of mine and I having discussions about that. She was like, why, why do you have to go to the bar? Like after the event, can't you just come home and chill? And I was like, yeah, I could, but also like one, I, I enjoy going to the bar and, and causing a ruckus, but also like genuinely so many event connect, like of connections, as bad as it sounds, like came over a pint, like, or like 
they were like, who's that guy on fire? No, Drew was always the guy on fire, but who's that guy dancing <laughs> on the bar? Oh, that's the MC guy. Look, he's getting the party started here and he's at the ma- on the mountain at seven in the morning on the microphone. That's the kind of guy we want. Because, I mean, I think the snowboard energy from back in the day was always that kind of less as it is now, which is, it's great how professional it is and, you know, how sporting, let's say, and, you know, everyone's concentrating and training things. But back then it was like the lifestyle was very much burning the candle at both ends. And when events saw you could handle it, like, because it's all well and good going to the bar and getting absolutely hammered and coming home at seven in the morning. But if you can't be on the mountain screaming in the microphone the next day, they're not going to hire you. Um, and they saw I could do that. And I don't know, but there was definitely a few years that, because uh, there was a couple of years where I was doing pretty much every event on tour and we were filming the Red Bull series, Jackson's Hole, which that, that nearly, that kind of burnt me down because it was like, if you've that's done the, with the that's, event. That's hectic, man. That's so super hectic. hectic. Because it was an event based, so it was like as soon as the mic was down. Norm, now it's great. The mic's done. I can go. Like event, I don't have to think about what's going on. But we were then producing a, a, a web series as well. So yeah. it's like mic's down. Got to go interview Mark. Got to go get a quote from Terry. Got to go and take my clothes off because there's nothing funny in this episode, which is quite a recurring theme. There's nothing funny in this episode. Henry, take your clothes off. Doom, take your clothes off. <laughs> Classic. Um, so yeah, there's a few years of, of of constant jet lag and 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 travel, but. Yeah, it was pretty, pretty insane. Like, I think I remember I, I qualified for 1K, which is the highest air miles thing on, on uh, United, on Star Alliance United. And I remember one of the, the staff saying, like, like you've qualified for 1K on, on economy flights, which, which is like something they were like, you, you almost deserve an award. Because, like, <laughs> normally it's just bit like, it's like you've got 100,000 miles only on economy. Um, yeah, which is uh, which is pretty hectic, but the the COVID thing rec- in recent uh, times has actually been quite nice. I, I realised that I've not been on an aeroplane since uh, I think August last year. How has it affected so- your work then? Because obviously travel was such a huge part of it. Decimated it. <laughs> um, no, it's not been too bad. Like initially, I mean, in some ways, I was lucky that the pandemic happened at the end of last winter because I'd had a solid winter of work. Yeah, you banked and then, a lot. Yeah, I I got a lot in, and then obviously not a lot of live events going on. But thankfully, I got um, a couple of online jobs for the summer. I did the little uh, Red Bull podcast or interview series with uh, Matt Payne, um, who was Marcus Cleveland's filmer and has Process Films. And then I did the Canadian Snowboard podcast series, so that kind of kept me going. And then coming into this winter, I didn't know what was going on, but thankfully, we actually managed to pull off a number of events because obviously Olympics next year. So this is a qualifying season. So the world cup, they just had to like Robbie and the FIS crew just had to make things happen. Yeah. And luckily I was, I was, I was involved in a bunch of them like Lax open got done. There was the Corbatch world cup. I was involved with absolute part with the spring battle and I do a bit of team management for them as well. So it's all good. It's definitely, it's definitely been, uh, uh, Slightly. It's been, it was funny. Uh, like it's been the first time in a long time that I see my bank bank account go down to like under a hundred euros. Like just generally like, wow, I, I need to get a job now, which, uh, you know, I've been lucky enough to have money in my bank account the last 10 years. And I was like, wow, this is like back in the day. Yeah. Yeah. Like, really, like, like, I, I need paid now. Like, yeah, is, it, that, is it coming? The hand to mouth years. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, you know, looking, that era that we just described that two the two decades and now obviously truncated by covid do you think those days are going to return 
do you, do you think that, that that kind of crazy like lifestyle that we just described do you think that's going to happen again do you see that happening do you see yourself getting mm. back on that kind of like you know china one week new zealand the next sort of uh, so the industry no. can support that in the future no i think i think the way it was definitely not um there wasn't a lot of a lot of it didn't make a lot of sense um it was just you know there was a lot of money in the industry at that point and um there was you know it didn't seem to matter that there was an event in america one week then europe the next week then america then europe then china then america then europe like it didn't seem to matter back then um, I think a number number of things happened. The industry has suffered some some setbacks uh, financially, which you know that's not the end of the world. But there's you know also with the with the advent of the Olympics, basically taking everything over to a point. Um, you know what was the TTR tour is now defunct. Um, there's very few independent events out there that are still on that old program, um, and it's sort of blended more into now the riders are on the World Cup tour, which which is the, you know, the qualifying tour for the Olympics and, and its own tour within its own right. Um, and they, you know, it's national team funded, national nation funded. So there's less, you know, there's a few more rules here and there for the riders. So there's definitely still an element of looseness out there and the, the snowboard spirit's still there, but it's, it's a lot more professional, which in a lot of ways is great. Um, but I do still miss some of the old kind of more like loose stuff, but um, you know, snowboarding's changed and it's, 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 it's a different, it's a different beast these days. Um, the act of snowboarding hasn't changed in any way. Like you can still go out and do whatever you want on the board, but at that, like the elite level, um, it is much more focused on getting those gold medals, I think. And individually riders, you know, they make the choice to maintain a kind of more old school, regular snowboard career on the side, like filming and you know, maybe more social media, uh, obviously much more than back in the day, but, you know, social media presence. Um, but if they're on those national teams, there's rules to follow and there's, there's, there's things, you know, quotas that need to be ticked and things like that. So it is a lot more structured than it used to be, let's say. Do you see that as a good or a bad thing? I think there's, I think it's equally good and bad in, in, uh, equal measure. Either, yeah, it's hard because, there's, you know, I think, it, you know, the way things were was probably a little bit too excessive um, in, in a number of ways. Um, but uh, it was fun. <laughs> but also, you know, there's, there's money coming into the sport, albeit through different avenues now. Um, it's interesting. I, I can't remember who said they had spoke to Seb Toots, but this isn't a direct quote from me talking to Seb, but it was a, another rider. Sorry, I just knocked the table. Um, another rider had been talking to Seb Toots about the 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 national team thing now, because obviously the top level riders are all on national teams, um, and they're all most of the teams like they're all rad people involved. Like the Canadian coaches are sick snowboarders themselves. They're all like diehard to the core snowboarders. You know, everyone involved in it. There's great people there. Like the right people are there. But there is a certain element that's come in because it is national funding of having to do it for a different purpose. And whereas it may have been a little bit more individual back in the day, like I'm going to win this because I want to be the best snowboarder. It still meant that there was a lot of mingling between the riders. Like Seb had said to, I think it might have been Leon, but had said to him, like back in the day, he would ride with everyone. You know, anyone. He'd be riding with Jamie Nichols. 
from the UK, he'd be riding with whoever else from Finland, like there'd be this more snowball vibe. And he said he, he'd noticed a bit more like, oh, you should, you know, you should support your teammates and stick with your, your team, which, which is something that I, that kind of, that little element. And it's, again, it's a very small part of it because I'll, I'll get to that point and say, but yeah, that element of it, like that kind of like separation because of that, I'm not backing. But again, it's not gone that far because at the Olympics, for example, like a lot of, you know, Mark McMorris has some great quotes on Canadian TV where he's, he's saying like, the snowboarders are always the weird ones because the other athletes are like, why are you sitting with the Norwegians? Like, you know, we're here to beat them. And they're like, no, that's my body style. Like I shred with him. And like, there is still that element, but it is becoming slightly separate, but it's brought in physios, you know, there's, 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 you know, development for riders. There's so much support for them to get to this goal of, you know, becoming amazing riders, which I think is great. Like, and, and, you know, any money coming into snowboarding, I think, if it's, you know, whether it's from that direction or that direction, like if it's going, if it's not going in some big wigs pocket, which that's a whole nother discussion, which uh, our mutual friend Terry Hackinson has a lot to say about, but the, the, the fist and the Olympics is a different thing. As long as the, there's money filtering into those riders and, and sort of the, the sport itself, I'm kind of, I'm, I'm okay with it. Yeah. It's, it's I think it's a really interesting debate right now because I kind of feel like the, I feel like the debate has moved on from the kind of binary like IOC, FIS, bad, core snowboarding, good thing that kind of characterized that debate for so long. I've, I'm, I'm having a really interesting conversation with Leslie McKenna at the minute, which is ongoing. Um, she just wrote a really, I thought, thought-provoking blog about all this, um, where her take, I'm actually going to do an episode with her about it because I, I saw it was so interesting, but her take was that, ultimately like that new block if you like ioc fierce olympics gold medal whatever it is does drive progression at the end of the day you know like it it it, it does drive progression in the sport and that is supposed to be the point so if you if you kind of like belittle that progression because it's not the right type of progression you're essentially not really being true to the spirit of what the whole thing is supposed to be about. And you're not being fair to the riders that are driving that form of progression, which is a viewpoint that I've never really heard characterized before. And it's quite nuanced. It's quite subtle. And I think I published a blog about that and I had a couple of comments that were like, Oh, you know, fuck off this, blah, blah. Watch, <laughs> go and watch, go and watch Arthur Long go on side hits euphoria, man. You know, that kind of thing. And I was a bit like, yeah, but her point is that the that snowboarding today is all of those things. It yeah. is. It is cutting edge progression in the pipe, which might be impenetrable to most riders. It's also Arthur Longo. And if you don't appreciate all of those things, then it's it's just, it, it, that's kind of a pointless position at this point in time, because that is the reality that we face. And to just keep kind of harping back to the good old days and, you know, like, this sort of and we've done a little bit of that in this in this conversation obviously you know we have done a little bit of like oh you know back in the day blah blah that that's also part of a healthy culture i think but i do i do think leslie's point is a, is a very interesting one particularly when you look at surfing and, and skateboarding because the other thing that she's the other point that she's kind of making is like we've wasted a lot of energy essentially in fighting amongst ourselves yeah. like you know and so i just i just wondered because you've got quite a unique perspective on that given your 
probably one of the most seasoned snowboard watchers and industry watchers that I know. You know, somebody's got these opinions. I, I, I wondered what your take is on that that viewpoint. Yeah, it's it's it's. I, I think if you ask all the riders, or let's say most of the riders, if they you know, if they would like to have it the way it was, I think. I don't know whether it's because they feel like because you're a snowboarder, you have to say that. Like most of them be like, oh, I wish I wish I'd got to be part of that. Which I think is but, also just as a quick aside, I think that's also one of Leslie's points that it's almost like an identity that you have to put on to be a snowboarder, to have that opinion without actually thinking about whether that opinion at this point has any value or not. Exactly. Yeah. Um, but then, you know, there is a lot, there's so, there's so like progression wise. And, and I think progression you can talk about not just like who's just, who's done a 1980 or who's, you know, who's done the latest thing. It's also progression in support for the athletes. Like, yeah. Which is a a great point. A great point. Yeah. The sports psychologist, the nutritionist, there's, there's like the most cutting edge shit going on in physiotherapy and mental preparation. Team Canada, right. Team Canada have a guy who's, analyzed brainwaves now I'm, I'm i'm in no way able to go into the science on this yeah yeah, yeah. but he they have he has analyzed brainwaves to the point where he knows the frequency of where your brain is reacting when you go into the flow state okay so they have a thing that you can put on your head and sit down and there's a drone next to you and when you have put your brain into flow state the drone takes off wow so like I'm actually so, even trying to comprehend what that. Yeah, like, do you remember that movie? Uh, it was Daryl. Was like this this kid who was like an android, and he <laughs> and there was a bit in the movie. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> like he had this neuro thing on his head at one point, and it's like honestly, it's something like that that goes in the head, and they sit there, and they try they try different ways to work out how that rider gets in the flow state. And I know you've talked about flow state in some of your other episodes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Don't wow, need to go too much that, into that, that but that, that's next level, though, isn't it? To actually look kind of yeah, like hard. It's ridiculous. That. Yeah, and it's and and like on you know on that level and like you know just just yeah support for those athletes and and you know a structure of you know there is a clear structure for let's say let's say a grom like a talented young snowboarder from the UK let's you know take what used to be our little insular scene you know has a talent to to take it that far there is a a path now that's been wonderfully set out by hamish and and leslie and the the whole crew over there in freestyle skiing and snowboarding sorry free skiing and snowboarding um you know there's there's a very definite path that they can take to get to you know that top level and whether whether or not that's a good thing for the snowball culture i don't know but it, it means that people can get there and also, you know, the, the support for them to do it. And at the same time, where you know, you bring up Arthur Longo. He went to the Olympics. Like, he well, did exa- that. And, well, exactly. And then he, and chose, he chose to step away. And exactly. I, I, I feel like often when you get something like that, where for every, you know, action, there's a reaction, is like may- maybe with the way it goes more down that professional athlete thing, you're going to have the other crew who are like, I don't want anything to do with that. I'm going to go and feel, want to, I want to be like, you know, Arthur Longo. I want to be in the Evergreen crew. I want to be in the Vans crew. I want to be like Will Smith from 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 Leeds, who's, you know, carved an excellent professional career out of yeah. only riding street rails and doing creative stuff and, and art. So there is, you know, there's, there's, there's the progression comes in different forms. And yeah, it'd be great if, if 
snowboarders somehow had managed to bond together back in the day and form a unit and say, you're not taking our sport. We're going to be the government body. But it didn't happen. So, yeah. and it, it, I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? Because part of it, I think, is is that very human tendency towards nostalgia. I mean, that, you know, that is just that is just we're programmed that way, aren't we? To look yeah. backwards and think it was it's part of getting older as well, whether you're a culture or an individual, you know, like yeah. the fact of the matter is like things are always in flux. Things always change. I mean, you know, if you look, I, I watched a documentary about George Best the other night, greatest player of his generation, drunk half the time, destroyed his career basically because he was an alcoholic, didn't have the support in place to kind of like retired from top level football at 27, but he's still held up on the same pedestal as Messi and Ronaldo, who obviously do not live their life like that now. That culture has changed and in that world, people don't judge them any less because they're suddenly looking after themselves. No one's look, go, going back and saying like, well, George Best was better than them culturally because, but in our world, that does happen. Like, you know, like, For sure. and I think, I think the, the challenge is, you know, what I'm saying here is that like that change is inevitable in any form of life, including surfing, skateboarding and snowboarding. Probably skateboarding is the, is, is going to be naturally most resistant to that. But it will also happen in that arena. And I think the challenge is now you've got to reconcile those two poles at some point. Like Because ultimately, if you keep saying one is better than the other, as we kind of have done in snowboarding, that's going to be to the detriment of our culture at the end of the day. And that's that's not. And I agree with you. Like Longo is a brilliant, a brilliant example. He's both of these things. He did that, and now he's doing this, and that's fine. Yeah. And that's how that's kind of what how it's going to be, really. But it is a, it is a very interesting debate for sure. And like yeah, I said, it, it could it could go on for hours, days, years, months. It's still going on. Well, I remember me, the... you, and Ed having that massive dust up about Sean White in that Indian in Wanaka, you know, which was. <laughs> Yeah. Well, not really me and you, but me and Ed had like a proper boozy row about Sean White, you know, and he, yeah. and what I found interesting about that was essentially like he's, people are trying to project things onto him, you know, like you should behave in a certain way. You should do this. You should do that. And that kind of happens a lot, doesn't it? You know, there, like it or not, there is this cultural, I don't even know what the word is, but like waiting is, is a badly phrase way of putting it but there's this cultural expectation of the icons at times yeah you know? there's so many contradictions in it as well like i i remember do you listen to the bomb hole with uh with chris Kinnear and, and eastone the new snowboard one from from the states yeah 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 yeah. so the they they go on they uh touch on it quite a lot it's this this kind of idea of um like you know sometimes in snowboard we can be very like oh look at that guy he's whack like, you know, someone will show up and have like kooky stunts or like kooky clothes. And all they're doing is snowboarding and having fun, yeah. which is, you know, the chorus element. Supposed to be the point. Exactly. And then, you know, you've got a crew of like, for want of a better term, snowboard Nazis being like, oh, look at that guy. He did a zeech or something like, what a dick. And you're like, God, that's horrible. But then you've got the kind of flip side of it where there is a cultural identity of being a snowboarder that in some ways you kind of want to preserve because people are like, oh, why can't you just be like going boarding and that's it? And you're like, yeah, but we have developed this subculture from its roots that, you know, we've all bought into and it's all, you know, for us, it's our lives or has been our lives. 
and you're like there's, there's there's such a fine path to tread between it and um actually good friend of yours who you've you've interviewed really good episode was uh was elias elhart was over here and I, I feel like he's he's someone who's you know constantly trying to find that he's you know constantly trying to analyze and 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 uh you know settle himself internally with these contradictions in snowboarding as his 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 uh, he, uh, he said. Uh, elias explores this really well yeah really, really really interestingly and yeah i need to phone him actually but we <laughs> try, try to catch up for the last month um yeah he was down here for two weeks and but so i met him years ago we were, we were working in camper champions in whistler together and i was aware of his snowball career and he, he was still like young guy blonde dreadlocks um and we were putting up fences in in on on blackcomb uh, blackcomb glacier together and at that time camper champions was probably the ultimate hub of cool people like everyone was there like not like I'm, I'm painting everyone with the same stroke but like you know there's a lot of people there to be seen and you know what they wore was important and this kind of stuff and i just remember um it kind of i don't want to like put words in his mouth or anything like that but i remember it sitting like i could see a sort of struggle going on with elias about this he sort of like because he was there like wearing whatever clothes his sponsor had given him you know for want of a better word, he did look relatively kooky. You know, yeah. we, we got given these free clothes, which were cool, but like bright blue, turquoise blue. And he's like, cool, free clothes. I'll wear those. And was ripping, like absolutely ripping. And he, but he just struggled with this, like, like these people, like, you know, kind of giving people shit or whatever. And like, were more interested in how their hoodie was on their body than like what, like the pure act of riding a snowboard. And I just remember like seeing this in him and I'm like, wow, I, he's like, why can't we just like do a backflip and, appreciate doing a yeah, yeah exactly remember that like sat because at that point i was like snowboarding matters so much like i, I studied the mags like i had like growing up in the uk i think you have to do that because you can't shred all the time so you like yeah. get immersed in it and i was so like and i remember hanging out with elias and i was like i need to be more like that yeah like um um that's more what i want to be like yeah um and i also took away from that as well was i met louis paradis at that point and he was the the probably the best snowboarder there he just won trans world rookie of the year and he was the most chilled of all of them of all of the quote-unquote wannabes he was the most chilled and then we also had larogs there who was just the complete opposite of all the american canadians <laughs> <laughs> just yeah. getting absolutely hammered and going crazy yeah um, so and yeah, also was... with a very very um individual and unique style both on and off the yeah, snow yeah. which is great but yeah like since that 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 six weeks I hung out there with Elias I've always tried to like take those elements in but yeah there is a part of it which we try and preserve because you know a trick is you know we we say a trick you know why does it matter what a trick looks like it's like because it matters like <laughs> well that's, I mean, that, that, that's the essence of it isn't it at the end of the day and that's the di that's what differentiates it between football and maybe not football actually because there is an aesthetic in football but something like Actually, I'm about to contradict myself even more because there's an aesthetic in sprinting, as you can see, with, yeah. the, with the way that Usain became such an icon, because that wasn't yeah. just about the fact that he was fast, was it? But th 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 there's, there's definitely culturally style progression. Those things just are unique to what, what we're all, these sports are all about. And that is the battle that's faced now. How do you preserve that in this, in, in, in this new era? I mean, another question I wanted to ask you, I might, I might just dig up Leslie's blog cause she phrased it quite well, but it is about the social 
responsibility of the cultures as well. I'm sure, I'm sure you know what I'm getting at. Um, because in the last year, obviously that's become quite a hot topic and also quite a contentious topic. Um, Leslie phrased it this way, to what extent is the snowboard community aware and able to take on the bigger social and cultural issues of our time, not just the politics of Olympic focused sports, but also the issues of equality, diversity, sustainability and the climate emergency. And why is that important? I mean, you know, it's a big question, isn't it? But it is, you know, whenever I do an episode about anything remotely, I'm not even going to use the word controversial because that would be massively overstating it, but anything that's, (laughs) that's just not purely about snowboarding that attempts to engage with anything social or political. There's always, always, always the pushback and you see it on Instagram. Like, you know, I don't know if you saw Burton's pride post last couple of weeks ago and like, you know, unfollowed, it isn't yeah. about politics, blah, blah, blah. You know, people recoil against that. What's your take on that? Because obviously it has been a big, a big topic this last year. Don't feel yeah. obliged to answer because I know not everybody feels comfortable talking about this. So no, it's it's something that I try and reconcile with myself, and it's obviously something that should evolve constantly. I think. I mean, at its core, I guess we're just idiots pissing about on <laughs> what dinner trays in the snow. So I I understand that backlash where it's coming from. That whole oh, can't we just leave politics off the chairlift or whatever? And for some people, it is an escape. But the, the thing is, uh, especially with the biggest social issues of our time or not of our time that have been going on and we're trying to deal with at the moment, uh, you know, it involves people. And I think people should try and get involved. Far be it from me to say what people should do or what people should think. But, um, you know, we have a history of not being, you know, the irony in, in the idea that snowboarding is a free sport and everyone should do what they want. And, you know, to a lesser extent, it's that idea of if you grab there, you're a dick or whatever. And then, you know, using the you know, in the, in the homophobic slurs that we've all been guilty of for years, you know, all oh, that trick was gay, all that kind of stuff, which like, even now I'm kind of getting sweats of like, of, of regret and, you know, shame of having gone through so long of doing that and things like that. And then, you know, the issue of diversity, like, how do we, how do we address that? Like, it's, it's a, oh, it, there's so many massive social issues that, I wish there was a simple answer to like, I mean, if we, if we look at demographic of, of where, you know, especially in Europe, we take Europe, like the Amer- America's a different beast. Yeah, I agree. Which, which America's, is hard, America's hard for me. Conversely quite a lot more progressive. I think like in these, unless you disagree, but I, I, I kind of see in our worlds, there's a bit, there appears to be more progress. There appears to be more conversation. Yeah, I think so. Um, it, uh, you know, traditionally winter sports have come up in, in areas where there aren't, there aren't necessarily many demographics of, of cultural diversity. Like it's predominantly white areas, which doesn't answer the idea that, oh, you know, there's not enough different cultures getting involved, but you know, it's, it's, there is a geographic element to that, but I, you know, it's, it was crazy being in my often back in the day, because we had uh, Neil Campbell uh, come out and live with us for years. Yeah, Neil or Nine Lives, as I like used to call him, because that guy almost killed himself nine times a day on a snowboard and got away with it <laughs> every time. And it was so it was so eye opening to have him with us. Because I mean, until that point, like there were still jokes going around, like 
like you'd be on a chairlift with some, I'm not going to name anyone specifically, but I chairlift with a Dutch friend who was just like, oh, make a wish. And I was like, what? And he's like, make a wish. I'm like, why? He's like, look, there's a black person skiing. And I was just like, oh, that's a bit weird, but okay, make yeah. a wish. You know, that kind of thing was little jokes like that. And then, so when Neil came out to stay with us, we actually had Neil staying with us and Louis Peruca as well. Um, and I saw Neil put up with so much racist bullshit. Like even get us guilty of it, like, you know, dropping the N-bomb or something like what's up, you know, within the little unit he had. And he was just like, oh, it's fine. They're just kids, you know, like the, the Milton Keynes posse and James Carr and all the, the ATV crew were his, his posse. And I was like, fuck, dude, is that allowed? He's like, oh, it doesn't matter. They don't mean anything by it. You know, it's fine. And Neil was always so good at like putting up with stuff that I was like, man, this guy is like, this is this human is like the greatest person I know. Like he was getting racial slurs thrown him in the bars, and I was always like, "Right, let's go!" Like fuck that guy. And he was like, "Just leave it." I want to be the example of like why more people should come and do this, or why it should be good. And man, it was so heavy seeing all that stuff and watching Neil put up with it. And fuck, he's one of the best people I know to to do that. And like the fact that people don't think that shit goes on, it's just get your head out of the sand. Like, yeah, come on. Well, like I think it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's really. Well, I think that's, the, for me, my personal view, it won't be news to anyone who's ever listened to this. I think they are just like, I think you are justified having these conversations through this medium of our culture for, that you've just very eloquently explained why, because that is real. That did happen. And also for me, I just think, I just think it's about trying to have a, just a fucking normal conversation about this stuff. You know, like if you look at the Burton thing, like there's got to be a middle ground between like, um, you know, like companies doing nothing and then doing something. I'm not singling Burton out. And then people at yeah. the other end of the, of the, of the conversation being like, right, fuck them. I'm boycotting it. You know, th- most people are in the middle of that. Most people are like, yeah, are like, okay, it is an issue. It's worth talking about. Can we just have a normal conversation about this? It's like, if you look at the Terrier thing, like, no, I don't think anyone wants Terrier to be cancelled at all. <laughs> I think, I think what everybody, what most right thinking people want is just to, just to be able to have a conversation about why that might have been slightly problematic. And, you know, if he's, if he's like legitimately up for exploring, like learning, that's, that's fine. End of story. Great. You know, like, that's all that that should be we should be able to have a conversation at that level without it immediately devolving to like fuck you i don't agree with that i'm going to stand and fight you know because like like we said and again this is not an original observation (laughs) newsflash the world's fucking changing every day and you know the point at which you plant your flag in the ground and say well i've had enough you know like i've had enough of this like i'm not yeah you're gonna get left behind you know like it's just gonna live in a it's never gonna stop you know yeah i think i think this because there's there's things that pop up like i when you when you um i'm i'm three quarters of the way through your latest episode with lauren um about the terrier uh situation um and i think in your your description you know you said that you yourself had read his apology and sort of said like oh that's an apology good and i have to say like my initial oh lost my headphone my initial thought was, like, oh, good, he's apologised. And then I did, halfway through it, I got, hold on a minute. Like, this might not be exactly what it is. But the th- I think for me, 
like the the bomb hole with Russell Winfield was really good. Like there was a lot of really cool stuff. In he that. speaks. And he speaks really well on all this. He does, and I think at the end of it, you know, they say like, "What can we do?" And he's like, "Just be a good person." Like he sums it up so like be like be a good person and do what you think a good person would do, and if everyone does that, we won't have any problems. Like because because there's got there is got to be something in your brain that makes you realize like what I'm doing probably isn't correct. And okay, maybe if you are. That's what you truly believe is right. And it's not, you know, for me to judge anyone like, okay, maybe that's not a cool thing. If you're being racist or homophobic or whatever, that's not cool in my opinion. But you truly believe that's what's going on. Just read a few more books, maybe. Well, I think it's like, you, I, mean, I think it's like you said, you know, you, when you were talking about the fact that you would describe tricks as gay or whatever. And like, you know, now you can look back on that and cringe and, and, and you won't do it again. And you've, you've reflected on that, like a grown up. <laughs> you've yeah. just gone, okay, well that was, that wasn't cool. I won't do it. You know, that, that's kind of, that, that's what you need to do really. And that was the whole point of the episode with Lauren. Like it wasn't about like caning Terrier, you know, like I, I, I <laughs> yeah. got a lot of shit online about that, you know, people basically yeah. accusing me and Lauren of like, oh, you just want to cancel him and you were like social justice warrior, like, you know, all that, all that cliched stuff, you know, it's not even about that. You know, like I'm, I'm genuinely saying that I read this wrong and because I just want to make the necessary adjustments, which, which don't really affect my life in any way, shape or form, you know, like for me to actually try and learn a bit more about that and take on board an alternative perspective and then put that into my day to day living is literally not a pain in the ass. It's just not a pain. It doesn't affect my ability to live my life in the slightest other than to have a little bit more empathy for another human being. So that's the way that I try and look at it really, you know, I mean, confronting people with their, you know, maybe holding a mirror up to, to things that maybe deep down they know are wrong or like, what is it? Cognitive, uh, cognitive dissonance dissonance in this is it's tough. Like uh, Ryan, you know, Diggles, Ryan Scar, Scar Diggly. Uh, ice cream no. ice ice cream for breakfast on instagram he he was responsible for a lot of the beyond metal stuff he was the battalion marketing manager he's from california originally been in europe for a long time he we chat a lot about it like this he, he's he's uh moved off in a very leftist sort of communist view of of where the world should go and we've chatted a lot about that kind of you know holding the mirror up to things and confronting people with that and it's hard it's <laughs> funny isn't it as well because at the minute we've got this whole taking the knee thing with the footballers which has actually died down a little bit, but, but anyway, like that, that made me ponder. Cause the other thing that happens as well is like, especially online, if you at all question anything, it's like, well, you're unpatriotic, you know, like you can't question these things. So it's made me think like, am I, am I patriotic? Am I actually patriotic? It's a question that I've never even bizarrely loved. I've never even asked myself like through my whole life. And I think, I think I probably am a bit really like, I, th- I think I probably do like I am proud to be British and I do, I do really, I do think Britain's a good country. Like I think culturally, obviously there's a shitload wrong with it, but there's also a lot of things right with it. And yeah, the history is like really problematic at points, but I just don't see why you can't kind of, be aware of that, acknowledge it, and also be proud of what's of, of the other good things about it, which is kind of my position, really. You know, like when I look at the England football team 
standing up for what they believe in, <laughs> standing up for by taking a knee and getting booed and still doing it. That makes me proud because I'm like, yeah, good for you. You know, you're actually that 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 for me is is like that's the type of Britishness that I can get behind, as opposed to like you know we should keep all our statues up. You know, for me that's not a definition of patriotism at all. Like, mm. but it is. I just think most people are probably quite similar. They're like, they're, they're, com- they're contradictory, they're complicated. They want to try and understand all these things and they want to, and they're in, and as long, like you say, as long as you can be a little bit inquisitive about it and ask that question, that that's, I, I just don't see why that would be a, a, a negative thing really personally. But yeah. for a lot of people it is, as like, like we say, just one look at any comment thread on Instagram depressingly demonstrates i mean the burton Burton thing was wild like on the on their pride post you know that that was like well i think that's why you need to have more of these chats really if that's if that's the response yeah the comments the comment sections can get wild on anything these days it seems yeah it's uh uh, it's interesting yeah i get i i've i had a rule a few years ago with facebook before the instagram thing was i'd often like don't I'd often type out. No, so like I, I, I would, yeah, probably better. But I'd, I'd often get enraged by things people said. I do the fake and type. So, yeah, type it all out. Type the response. Delete, yeah. and then. But that's just that's leave it that's mad, isn't it? Like, do not engage. I, I think we all do that to a certain point, but that's when I'm a bit like, yeah, it's this. Car. That's why I went off Facebook because every time I'd go on there, I'd find myself having like imaginary conversations with people that. <laughs> that posted things that I disagreed with. And then, and then I was like, that is not healthy. Like that, no. I don't need that in my life at all. No. Um, I mean, but I do miss, like I, I, I miss a little bit. I do miss a little bit of the kind of the element of discussion in that, like, you know, before social media, a lot of these conversations I think were aired out. I mean, in our world, you'd, you'd have, you know, have a pint or whatever at the pub and you'd, You'd argue out your political differences and then, you know, no one would really win or lose. You'd just sort of say your piece, maybe shout at each other a bit and then get the next round in or, yeah. or chairlift chats. You'd like, I mean, our chairlift chats were a lot more lowbrow than they probably are these days with, with the new generation coming up. But, you know, you talk about it, like even to the point like whose style was whack on a snowboard and you just shout at each other like so well, like, like, me, oh, like, me, like me and ed with sean why i mean we we were like literally yeah. shouting at each other ah. we? <laughs> yeah exactly but but at the end of the day it's like it's that interaction and you know that's what it is it's just airing it out whereas these forums of chat and put it on facebook like there isn't that element of sort of social interaction where you can see you know whether someone's actually joking or whether that was a slightly ironic comment all this like the facial interactions or the, the tone of the voice and it all disappears yeah. yeah, I mean, it's I, a very I, different I, topic. <laughs> I was just a guest on a podcast um, called the After Hours Lounge, which is about mental health, and the host Sandy is really good, actually. Um, but he his analogy was like, well, you should treat social media like going to someone's house, you know, like by all means have an opinion, but like if it's getting to the point where you're going to start arguing with the host, and you should probably leave, really you know yeah and I, I thought that was like fair. it'll never happen but i did quite like that as a kind of rule to that's live a great, by because it's almost like there, there should be monitors like it's time for you to leave like some yeah, automatic that, thing that, pops that's up. you know like you say in person we have these kind of filters 
that are ready to go, don't we? But in social, because we're removed, those filters are also removed and the results get quite stressful. Yeah. 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 Anyway, I, I made the mistake of going back on Facebook a bit at the end of May, got got caught up in it. And then I was, and then I just deleted, deleted the post that was causing the arguments just because I thought, you know what? I just don't need this in my life. I no, don't, no. I don't, I don't need this. I don't need to be thinking about this. Like if I'm going to say something about this, I've, I've already got a forum where I spout shit. I don't need to. Yeah. Now I I I go through phases of your uh, Jamie Thomas uh, interview. Chatting to him was great. Um, popular on that. About, Perennially yeah, popular that one. Yeah. You know his take on social media and things like that. Because you know I have exactly the same thing. I'm like, oh, do, I, you know, I, I need my social media because it might get me a job or whatever. I'm like, what is what has me posting a surf pit got to do with any kind of career choice ever? It's just, it's just me went, Oh, I got a few likes on that backhand turn or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> it's just, or it's me just going, ah, my job, my job isn't even weirder than yours. It's like, ah, I'm surfing. You're not. Yeah. yeah. Well, a friend of mine <laughs> made a video, a friend of mine made a video that he sent me. He's great. I, I had him on the, the pod recently. He's a great filmmaker and he made a film about social media and, we were talking about that and I was a bit like, I think at this point, you know, everyone kind of gets that there are negative points to social media. And really the only interesting topic is like how you individually handle it and the effects. Cause end of the day, it is all a mechanism to harvest and sell data. Um, yeah. And kind of like your little outcome at the end of that is so relevant, really bigger picture with what's going on and you know, whatever I'm not, going to get into that because there are far more eloquent explanations of that than i'll, I'll be able to manage but yeah i think I th- it, it is part of our lives we all use it you know we all go through the battle that you're talking about i just think you have to work out a way of kind of managing it yourself don't you really at this point oh and i've i mean not so much nowadays because I'm, I'm not flying so much but i used to have a lot of time to kill in airports and it's great for wasting a couple of hours when you've got nothing else to do yeah like <laughs> the memes just keep me giggling like i often think about that like imagine if we harnessed all the all the brain power and ingenuity that goes into making these ridiculously funny and entertaining memes if we managed to harness that power to fixing the world's problems we'd be fine yeah yeah no it's true but then again it is sometimes it's just very funny isn't it yeah yeah so what's the plan for us today man um possibly doesn't look like the winds come up so we've, we've actually the dream week at the moment or the last oh yeah because we got a big, there's a good pulse on the way so you'll a be pulse on the way you'll be getting um, that yeah and i mean traditionally around here in in summer we do get quite a lot of wind it's it's quite weird the water gets cold and gets a bit windy right quite strange um but we you know normally have swell but the last sort of seven or eight days have just been glassy as so we've all been kind of i think i sort of three times which i i haven't done in ages like three times and two days in a row and i was just done after that but yeah bit of surfing got some work to do on the house um slowly doing little last bits of renovations um yuka my wife's here she's uh getting into surfing she's uh enjoying that so i might take her for a a, a foamy sesh um in fact i gotta go and buy her a foamy for her birthday it was her birthday the other day so that's what she's getting. She's getting a phony. Nice. Forcing my my pastimes onto her. Yeah. You will ball, learn to surf. The bowling ball with Homer written on it. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> you, exactly. Um, 
but that's actually been an interesting journey like watching her or like because she's phenomenally talented snowboarder you know does double courts and stuff yeah she's a but, sick snowboarder yeah so i'm you know there's this but we'll go out in a knee knee high clean waves and she's there freaking out and i'm like what what is going on here like what why are you so scared i mean she she nearly drowned once so she's got a bit of trauma from that and she's just not done the beach thing ever so physic like the actual physical act of surfing she has way better technique than any of us boys standing up she's perfect like back straight feet up yeah and then goes along the wave perfectly but everything else she's terrified and she's since being in portugal um we've we've learned quite a lot that i'm not necessarily the best instructor um you know that like husband wife element like you know never yeah. teach your wife to drive or vice versa like um uh that Classic. comes into it yeah and but luckily there's a few other crew around here or more of a similar level to her um who are very like they kind of won't let her chill She'd yeah be scared and they'll be like come on you're coming surfing and so she's got a little zone in the main spot here in ribera that she knows now and she'll go with them and catch waves and She's starting to enjoy it, which is great because it's always, you know, when you're like, wow, she hates the ocean. Maybe we can never live by the ocean kind of deal right. is, is a, a scary prospect for someone yeah. like me. I should get into it. Yeah, great place to yeah. be. Yeah. Yeah. No, she's getting to the point where she enjoys it. She's catching proper waves. And it's the thing, like, she'll be terrified and she'll catch a wave perfectly. Like the other day I was out with Diggles and, you know, she paddled into like for what for her was a big wave. And I was like, oh, no, she's going to be all right. Takes off on the wave, does it like a perfect flick of the fringe, kind of like, whoosh, and then just perfect poise all the way down the line. And I'm like, what are you worried about? Like when I was at your level of surfing, I could I would be going over my head, hitting my head on the rocks. Like I couldn't do it as good as that. Yeah, she certainly got the foundations with that yeah. technique. Jesus. Yeah. yeah. Nice man. Well, thanks for doing it, mate. Great to chat. So there you go. That was me and Henry, and I hope you enjoyed it. You can find Henry on Instagram at Jackson's Hole, where you can keep up with his exploits, including his rapidly progressing surfing. And while you're at it, you can find me over at We Look Sideways as well. If you want, you can also watch this entire episode on YouTube. I don't put every episode on YouTube, mainly because of resources and time, but this one is going to go on there, hopefully at the time of uh, me speaking and you listening. So yeah, go and have a look and subscribe if you fancy that. You can also leave me a comment. Obviously, it's the Wild West YouTube comments, so they tend to be a little bit fruitier than they are usually, but why not, eh? You can also head over to my website, www.wearelookingsideways.com, where you'll find the full show notes, the entire back catalogue, and you can familiarise yourself with all the other stuff I do, like the book I just published, the newsletter I put out every fortnight, my collaboration with Patagonia called Type 2, and my entire back catalogue of coming up to 200 free and ad-free podcasts yeah i did really enjoy that especially that part about where we chatted about the wariness we felt about our respective groups of friends when we were in our 20s it's actually something that i really enjoy about getting older and it's one of those kind of oscar wilde youth is wasted on the young scenarios you know the type the amount of energy you waste on pointless stuff like that and how liberating it is when you get a little older to just completely forget about all that bollocks and enjoy people's company and lives on their own terms. So thanks for the reminder, Henry. Thanks for a great chat and thanks for bringing your insight to the show. All right, little interlude. Hey up, I'm Matt Barr and you're listening to...
What's the name of the podcast again? So that was my friends Ruben and Indy who were around at my place with their parents for a barbecue the week. I set up my podcast kit so they could have a play in the studio and they kindly left me a load of jingles to discover. And I think that one was my favourite. Also seems fitting to play this during this Housekeeping Corner segment as I wanted to chat about an idea I've had, which I think could be quite interesting. Basically, I'm thinking of running a contest to find the first Looking Sideways media apprentice. So what does this mean? Well, basically, I'm going to hold a contest to find a new industry voice. If you've got a story you're dying to tell, an idea you can't get off your chest, or you think there's something we should all be talking about, then this might be for you. So what I'm thinking is, you send me your ideas, you pitch me your ideas, and I'm going to pick a winner, and the winner will get the opportunity to record their own special segment of Housekeeping Corner in a future episode. And they'll also be able to write a blog, which will be published and sent out as part of my um, popular 10 Things newsletter and blog, which goes out to many thousands of people, including many, many, many industry people. So I think it's a pretty good idea. I did do something on Instagram about this, and it seemed to go down pretty well. It's a bewildering number of people replied to the poll saying they thought it was a bad idea, which I don't really get. I don't see how any kind of this idea of trying to provide somebody with a platform could possibly be a bad idea but you know wouldn't be the first time I've been out of touch with uh, general discourse but I'm going to do it anyway I think so yeah like I say you can send me a pitch it can take any form you like I mean the pitch is obviously going to be the thing that needs to be interesting as it needs to be in the real world when you pitch anybody you can email me at podcast at we are looking sideways or you can message me over at we look sideways on Instagram. Um, I warn you voice notes I don't tend to listen to which has come up quite frequently recently but I'll, I'll make an exception for this. Basically I'm just looking for original ideas and an original voice. The contest will be open to everybody and I really want this to be as open to as many people as possible. So I just will say one final thing. This is not an elaborate attempt for me to get a cheap intern. I'm genuinely interested in trying to help somebody get a break in the industry. I give it some more thought and keep you posted. It's likely to develop this idea. But in the meantime, if you've got any thoughts or even an idea, and an, an idea, listen to me, even an idea, I'm going to leave that in, then uh, yeah, get me on podcast at wheellookingsideways.com or like I say, message me over at wheellooksideways on Instagram. If any industry or brand pals like the sound of this and want to get involved, then you may also give me a shout. Let's talk. All right, final thing to say is if you've received your copy of your book, uh, Looking Sideways Volume 1, which I hope you have, then I hope you're enjoying it. And you could do me a favor by posting about it, which always really helps spread the word. That would be awesome. All right. I'll be back soon, getting back into the swing of it at the minute. But in the meantime, thanks for listening. Nice one. (laughs) 